Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player 2 episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we've returned back to the book for chapter 0001. But before we dive into that, there is a small section, and that is level four. It's a single page, and in it being a single page, it's kind of like a single page out of Anorak's Almanac, chapter 77, verses 11 through 20, which is interesting because they kind of, they've made it like Bible, and they literally reference it as though it was a Bible. And we're not going to go through the whole thing here, but the gist here is that we've got this quote from Kira and a general feeling. Well, it's a quote about Kira. It's a, I'm sorry. It's a quote about Kira. That's right. But there's this general feeling here, this, this sort of advisement that, look, you know, life is a video game and you should treat it as thus, but that you only get one life. And really the goal here should be to try and have as much fun playing the game as possible while you can without messing it up for other people, without being some sort of PvP asshole, with kind of the last bits being that Kira says that if everyone played the game to win, it'd be a lot more fun for everyone. Aww. I wanted to kind of stop here on this. I mean, it's, for otherwise, it's just a skippable page that, that gives you some sort of momentary context or sort of an attitude. But I, I kind of want to reflect on this because I, this is the same kind of stuff that I tell my kids. My kids are very familiar with video games. Your kid, hopefully plural kids at some point, will also get familiar with video games. Oh, you think so? You think I'm going to have my kid play video games? I don't think you'll have a choice. I think your kid's going to play video games. Not under my roof. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when my kids who are in their teens right now have issues... What I've told my son is like, look, if you have trouble approaching somebody, treat everyone in life like an NPC, like a non-player character. You know, you wouldn't be in a game, an MMO, and not go up to like 
a, a village farmhand who probably has some information about your next quest. I mean, who cares if they're an asshole or if they're nice to you? You know, your NPCs are characters within your life that aren't necessarily within your closest circle, but they are quest holders. They are people who can advance your quest or provide you quests. They're people who, when interacting with, can sort of unlock things and make life interesting and make the game interesting. It's the exact advice that I've given my kids when dealing with social situations. That said, how did this page speak to you? It's an interesting metaphor about you know life and video games. And correct me if I'm wrong, didn't at one point you tell me about this video game where you really only have one life? And once you've played and you've died, you can't play it again. That is actually the name of the game. It's called One Life. And the game has, it's a survival game, and it has a perma-perma-death. So basically, if you you die, you're going to leave the game forever. Okay, so I didn't make that up. I think it's a nice little way to kind of, I guess, or give credence to video games and the way it kind of relates to life and vice versa. I'm not a video game person, but I am alive. I think there's, I think there's a nice little message here. But yeah, you know, I don't know if there's too much to dwell on. It's a nice little segue into where we're headed, and I think it also serves as a window into who Kira is as a person. Sure. Clearly, she's going to be integral to this book moving forward. Well, let's crack into zero 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 one. Yeah. Why don't we? Yeah, we start off the chapter with Parzival waking up to Huey Lewis in the news back in time. Awesome. Which is is not particularly surprising. And let's face it, he gets up in the lap of luxury. This is is different than how we began the first book, which is him curled up on top of the dryer. That's how he spends his nights, looking out the window. To gunfire. He's woken up by gunfire. And now he's smacking the vintage clock radio from the movie, which, by the way, I did look this up. You can actually still get those on eBay. You can. Uh, There's a company that makes reproduction models of late 20s up through the 70s alarm clocks. I'm talking about the real deal. Like, these are like vintage. Well, these are pretty real deal. Like, they cost anywhere between $250 and $1,500. Yeah. I don't need a clock radio that bad. That's what I said when I saw the price. I was like, no, I bet you could buy the real one for less. Well, the ones that I saw on eBay at the time I took my notes, there was one that I think was not working that cost 50 bucks, and there was another one that was still functional but still had lots of scratches on it for just shy of 300 bucks. I was just looking up the prices myself here. Oh, and that's such an ugly... Ugly. I mean, I get it. That's from the movie. That's specifically from the movie where you have the time and the time is little, little flaps. Yeah. I mean, like that's so archaic. So archaic. They're hinged on this little center spoke. And as it turns, the flap flops up and that shows you the next digit. It's not digital. It's just this turning of a gear that slowly laps through flaps of text. Ugh. I mean, I suppose that could give somebody who's a huge fan of the movie some joy when they look at it, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, and on eBay, I see prices between 150 to 250 bucks, something like that. So, bit of a trip. So, anyhow, it 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 it, it sets the 
it sets the mood. It sets the stage. And, and you have that beginning scene where this, the, the flap flips up and then the song comes on because so that's what he set the timer to. And then it, it pans to him being in bed and getting up. And that's the same situation here. His king-size bed and preheated marble floor. Wow. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because it goes through that he has this stunning 180-degree view of sprawling Woodland Estate. He can see the jagged Columbus skyline on the horizon. He's got this beautiful bedroom and wraparound window shades. At the end of the page here, the only thing he really had his mind focused on, getting into his O&I, which means that it doesn't matter the level of luxury that you've got in, in his situation. It's empty. It's hollow. It's, he goes on in, in later pages to say that there's just some servants and some guards. Otherwise, this gargantuous house that he lives in is empty. And it's cool because that's kind of a reflection of this entire chapter. This is us reflecting on him being empty. He's empty on a number of levels. He's distracted and he's empty, just like his house. It doesn't have the original stuff that was in it that Halliday would have otherwise left behind. He only left the house and the property. So, I mean, it, that's kind of how I got the feel from this chapter, is that this whole chapter speaks to the emptiness that is his life outside of the ONI. I mean, th this chapter is a bit of a downer, man. If you thought the last chapter implied a, a fall from grace, this really gets it going hardcore. Well, this chapter presents me what I was kind of moaning about in the last chapter. So good on you for hiding it, because I had no idea this was coming. But in the in the last chapter, the last episode, I was like, man, where's the conversation? Where's the voting? You know, where's the situations where they discuss them exploring the technology and the potential conflict of the technology? And in the last chapter, I was like, man, I really wish I could have heard that. And then in this chapter, I'm like, wow, Boom. I really wish I knew less. Yeah. I really wish it had turned out better. Be careful what you wish for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of moves along. And, and just as we had kind of surmised before, you know, when everybody got their holdings, when everybody got their reward or their share, if you will, everybody did kind of what they thought they were going to do. Uh, everybody sort of turned to helping people, helping humanity helping the people in the stacks and giving them their own homes, turning the IOI skyscraper into a body locker hotel for the homeless, which is kick-ass. But again, it's very secluded. Like there are a lot of cities. You can feel good about doing something like that for your city. And I think that's great. But at a, on a worldwide level, that's, that's really microcosm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly what I was thinking when he was talking about how he, moved all the people from the Portland Avenue stacks into homes, uh, like their own homes. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's great for them, but who are they other than the people that live where you used to live? And it's such a small fraction of the people that need help. Millions of others. I think the upside there is, you know, those people in the book, if there was a situation where the choices that you made in your struggle for success had devastating consequences for the people that lived around you. Once you got that reward, wouldn't you want to go back and kind of contribute to the people who 
A, stuck up for you and supported you, and B, suffered some of the damage. Because it was his fault that, that, that his stack ended up blowing up. I mean, I say fault. It's not his fault. He didn't do it. But the fact that he was involved, I could see making some degree of guilt. And this kind of speaks to a, a, a sort of a, a survivor's guilt. Yeah, and some sort of absolution or something like that. It, yeah. Like, like he's trying to cleanse his soul or something like that by making right. So one of the things that I thought was interesting in this chapter is that he does go back to his van. And he goes yeah, back to his van in the Oasis, weird. right? I mean, that's – I don't know. Is it – like isn't there a place in your life where if there was a simulation that you could go back to – I mean think of the most comfortable place or maybe not even comfortable but the place where you had the most progress. Is that where you are now? I don't think of going back to my childhood home and curling up in a ball in the corner of the room and being like, ah, this is so comforting. This makes me feel – protected and safe more so than where I am now. I don't know. I, I'm well practiced at moving on from the past. You don't have that nostalgia attached to anything is what I'm getting. Well, I also haven't had anything like that taken away from me. You know what I mean? My stacks didn't blow up. You know, my old, my sure, parents still live in my childhood house. So like, I don't know if they ever moved away Suddenly it's like, oh, now I can't go back there for holidays and things. Not like I can go there now for holidays and things. Maybe it's partly like a little bit of you don't know what you had until it's gone. Okay, I can get that. Maybe I'd have a little bit more nostalgia for it if if it was gone. Yeah, I, I, I moved a lot. So I've lived in dozens of homes across multitude of states. When I think of music, like my wife is an audiophile. She just, she loves music. Yeah, but when it comes to dates. Duran Duran. Yeah. But when it comes to dates, she's not great at it. And she's admittedly not great. So I'm not being critical. I, on the other hand, am because I can actually relate a song to a place and time in my life. Like I can say that feels like Ohio. And I know the time that I lived in Ohio, like what grade I was in. It was very distinct when I heard it. Therefore, I could give you the years. Or the year that that song came back. Like, I, I can relate it to distinctly different places and periods in my life. I've lived in Florida and I lived in Washington State. There was a number of places, but I'd say if I had to like boil it down to a, a singular location, maybe, or a place, it would be my four door Chevy Caprice Classic. And it's the first car that, that I owned. Oh. How old were you when you owned this? I was 16, 17. And it was just. Okay. So you were like still like a fresh driver. Yeah, but I mean, the car itself was like a hoopty, right? It was like 20 years old. Yeah, but the, but but it was your first car. Yeah, yeah. It was my first car. My parents okay. gave it to me. You know, I had like a bench seat. Uh, it was very roomy, and I put lights in it, customized the stereo, that kind of stuff. So for me, that was kind of like... That was your hideout? Yeah, it was kind of my hideout. I spent a lot of time in it because there was a lot of transit in that car when you live in Seattle. A lot, of, a lot of driving around, but you know, all of the key moments in my life had that thing in common. I kind of get this. While it's not the van, uh, relationships were had in that car. Technology was explored in that car. So are you programming a replica of this in your Oasis? I would have this car in my garage in my Oasis. Absolutely. Hands down. Cool. And much as Parzival does, how he has his garage of cars, 
I would have these. In fact, I would I would have a collection of the cars that I've had in my life because I've I've had a good number of cars as well and memories associated with those. And for me, those are like my time machines, right? Those are my DeLoreans. Yeah, my Oasis garage probably be more like Parzival's or Wade's garage, like the cars from movies that I really enjoyed. And then I would just sit in them and just be like and soaking it in and enjoying it. I've had a few cars in my life and they're nothing to write home about. Well, and neither are mine, but like I can connect them to memories. Oh, I can too. And some of those memories I want to avoid altogether. So I just assume forget the car. Max, take that memory off of my playlist forever. Oh, and apparently you can do that. You can just say, I don't want to hear this song ever again, Max. Make this happen, Max. Oh, 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 okay, Parzival. Exactly. Yeah. So, but for me, it it would be, uh, you know, I had a, I had my Caprice Classic. I had a 1974 green Volkswagen Bug, which is a dramatically different car, by the way, just dramatically different. Caprice Classic felt like a tank. Volkswagen felt like a, it felt like a death trap. I was going to say, probably, like, probably driving around that plastic bubble. Yeah, but it was my first stick, right? So I learned how to drive a stick. You no, know, people hardly ever drive a stick now. It's, it's not even something most people learn. I had a PT Cruiser for a certain portion of my life. I had this, this weird van for another portion of my life. Like if, if I wanted to go and sort of feel those memories. And this is the kind of book for that because you record memories. You live through memories. Like he has a, a garage full of exotic cars that are related to shows that he loved. They're, they're related to memories that he can relate to. But for me, it's my cars would be related directly to personal memories. I mean, to be fair. To be fair. He does not have Earl memories to look back on. Yeah, that's true. All he has are the things that he appreciated from movies, TV shows, pop culture in general. So like that was it. He, that's what he had to look back. Those are his memories. And the fact that he can put these into the Oasis, that the stack actually exists in a place in the Oasis where he can climb up into his old trailer and curl onto the washing machine and then basically speak out his guilt to his mom and to his aunt. I don't know if that's therapeutic or if that's just living in regret. It was an interesting view into his psyche, I think, that he's doing that. And for one, how he admits that it's a parallel with what James Halliday did. There was something that he said here, talking about, you know, going back there and curling up into the corner of the laundry room that I thought was interesting. Hmm. Was when he said that he he goes there to apologize to his mother and his and his aunt Alice for indirectly causing their deaths. Now, we know that's true for Aunt Alice. Right. But his mother, she took a bad dose of something and and OD'd. Right. So the only thing I could think of there that he's saying that he may have indirectly caused her death was that she do all these things like because she was doing the online brothel stuff Mm -hmm. talking tricks and stuff that maybe like that's what kind of drove her you know like she needed to provide for her family and that's the one thing that she could do and it wore on her to the point where she had to do drugs or something i don't know it feels like survivor's guilt it sounds like survivor's guilt it's where it's where he feels responsible for their deaths and while that may be more directly true for his aunt 
for his mom, I mean, you could without him going into it. It seems like a reach. Well, I don't think so. It, if your mom died and she wasn't in your life and she died from an overdose and she had to turn tricks online in order to keep you fed because your dad had been killed or shot or whatever from stealing, they were doing that for you. They had to do that to keep you alive. You know? To, yeah, but... He's not going into it very deeply. He's just It's just this very loose, indirectly causing their deaths, full stop. To me, it, it puts a little. It, it equates their two deaths a little too much. It's so minor. So I'm curious if they delve into that, or if that's part of a backstory that happens later in the book, or or if it just is a means of accentuating that he has not only a place of comfort, but a place where he can go and communicate with the few people that meant anything to him before he became popular. Interesting. It's it's just again this this whole chapter is a bit of a bummer. Oh, you don't say. It's it's uh it's just one tick after another. Well, let's lighten up the mood and talk about Max Headroom. It is nice that there is that common thing that 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 permeates and kind of encourages him. It's that that's his, that's his C3PO. You have a copy of the book in front of you, I'm assuming, right? I do. Mm-hmm. I'm on page 29, the third the way up the page where Max is shouting Wade's World. Wade's World, party time. Excellent. So I was yeah. just looking here, and tell me if I'm just, like, going crazy. Maybe I've had too much to drink. But it says, Wade's world, Wade's word. What? When I didn't respond, he made a heavy metal face and started playing air guitar while shouting, Wade's world, Wade's word. Party time, excellent. I think that is a typo. Oh. Because that's not how it went. And you're right, it does say Wade's word. It says it on my on mine as well. I think that's a typo, dude. And you know what? That because that's a real word, it would never show up with an underline. Yeah, but they have these things called editors. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's a good catch. <laughs> no, they totally missed that. That's a trip. All right, good catch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the one thing that I thought was interesting about Max Headroom was that it's the exact same version number at, that he has in Ready Player One. They have not updated Max Headroom. Well, not much time's passed. No, but you, you got to remember that at this point, it's three years since the contest finished. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, that's right. We're reflecting We're reflecting back a bit. Oh, that makes sense. So he reinstalled Max Headroom 3.4.1. Eh, okay. Same version. You think after a few years, they might have maybe gone to like 3.5. Okay, but this whole three chap- four two. This, of course, three four two. I mean, who isn't on three four two at least? It's you know, unless that's a nostalgia thing. Like you can go to what is it, GitHub, and download like a whatever version you want of something. Sure. Like, you know what? Uh, I like that version. But the entire chapter is about him connecting, him not being comfortable with who he is today, and him reflecting back into who he is today, whom he doesn't like. He's reverted back to the version of himself that was at the lowest. His absolute lowest in in Ready Player One was when we were introduced to Max Headroom. And here we are again being introduced to Max Headroom in this book, and he is at the lowest point. Well, yeah, he's at a low point. That's true. But, I mean, he's yeah, he's at a low point. He's reflecting back because he's at a low point. And he's reflecting back at the low point of his life. Then, like the point here is that being rich does not remove your troubles. 
And I think that's something that, that is lost on potentially a good number of people, that just because you're rich and have a big house doesn't mean that you're going to be any more rewarded, that you're going to feel any better or any more confident. So he's looking for he's looking for comfort items. The cars in his garage are his comfort items because it takes him to the memories of those shows and it, it, it distracts him. Going back to Max Headroom old version three, four years ago, that that keeps him in a place where he's interacting with a familiar voice, not an updated one, not an upgraded. It has all the quirks, all of the bugs that the original had. They become endearing and familiar. So this whole chapter is just him basically saying, I'm in a shit and empty place now. And I would rather be at that low point I was in the past when when I had a potential love that I was going after, when I had the prize that was ahead of me and I was really close on it, when I had the popularity of going for it, and then everything around me that that had that comfort. This is This is him going back to comfort food. I feel like it's even more of a parallel to when we were first introduced to Max Headroom because that was after he first broke up with Artemis. And now we're a few years after that. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing about it as if it's the, you know, it's just happened for us. And we have Max Headroom. We have this elaborate exercise routine that he does that's part of his daily ritual. I do want to talk about his exercise routine because we kind of called it back in the first book. What did we call there? He's running around his huge house with his AR goggles to make it a workout area. Yeah, yeah. He goes downstairs, turns it into a into a maze. Yeah, so it just kind of projects all the stuff into like his actual environment. So when we were talking about this was chapter nineteen of Ready mm-hmm. Player One when he was on the Okagami runaround omnidirectional treadmill mm-hmm. and he's on the Bifros track. I have in my show notes from that chapter, and I'm pretty sure we talked about all those things, why not have simulations like being Ferris Bueller running home or have chase scenes? And then I have my next note, something from Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you did call that. Like, how, like how cool is that? Like, that's awesome to like turn your own house into a virtual anything yeah that is awesome well and you can do that like there there are places you can go where you can put on the vr headsets and run through a maze if you will or run through a different environment and the walls are real but what you see of the walls is what's presented in your glasses now granted it's not ar ar is an enhanced and altered visual reality but the fact that you that he's got this, and it's funny you should mention the technology here because that's where we're going. I, I feel, and we're we're just on the edge of that. Like Google Glass tried to break into that realm, and unfortunately, it just didn't take. I mean, you can still buy Google Glass, but it's only if you are working in certain industries that they are available that you can purchase them. We need something that are like regular glasses. We need glasses where it can paint the view in front of us, where it knows the environment around us. And it can take assets that we've invested in, that we've purchased, and it can know where we are in a building and put those assets around us visually. That's the next step. So mark my words, in the next five years, 
Apple's going to come out with a pair of glasses that is going to do exactly that. And it's going to allow us to not purchase apps anymore. We're going to be purchasing assets. Instead of having a bookshelf, a real bookshelf, and having to purchase books, we can have a multitude of bookshelves. We can put every book we've purchased on those bookshelves. It'll all be digital. The need for televisions, for a computer in front of you, sort of like maybe a keyboard, for posters, for decoration, all of that can go by the wayside. All you need is the place to be in and things to sit down on and things to eat with. Everything else that is entertainment-driven will be digital assets that we can dynamically interact with, that we can paint into our environment. And then if we want to move, moving is just a matter of moving a few bits of furniture, not a ton of other crap you end up sticking in crates. And believe me, I know. I'm looking forward to the day when my life can become lightened and I can bring my digital assets with me and I can use them to paint my environment. But what do you do with all your old physical assets? What about all your Funko Pop figures? Funko Pop stuff? I can have that as a digital asset. Like, what use is it sitting on my shelf right now? But what are you going to do with all the ones you own? I'll give them to somebody else. I, I guess the gist here is that if there's no longer a need to buy it or no longer a need to have it, then you've lightened your life. And the ability to move without having a ton of shit in a box uh, or in you know, a multitude of boxes is very freeing. I look forward to that realm because then we're consuming less stuff. Still got to buy the stuff. You do still have to buy the digital assets, but then they become yours. You know, that's that's something that you end up owning. Maybe that's something that, that Bitcoin ends up sort of using that ownership method of kind of nesting that in a token, if you will, wherein you own that. You can you can you literally own that thing digitally. You know, I'm hoping that's where we end up going. And the shift in resources, the fact that we're running out of a lot of time, many types of resources, that would be fantastic. That that would open up a completely new market. Probably shut down a few ones too. I don't know how I feel about that. I hope it's further than five years from now. I hope not. I, I would love that. You know, you walk in the house, you got your glasses on, and you need to you see everything you need to see. Your home is decorated exactly how you want it decorated. If your wife wants it decorated differently, then she can have it decorated differently. You could both see different things on the walls and, and still be in the same environment and not, not have to worry about conflicts of style. If you wanted the living room red and she wanted it blue, you could have it both ways. Yeah, but it's got to be something for when the guests come, if we ever have guests again. Yeah, you give them a pair of glasses or they just come in and it looks, you know, minimalistic. No big deal. <laughs> Anyway. Whatever. Anyway. anyway, you get you get the gist here. Sure. Is that in a world where resources are low, where people don't have a lot of stuff or they don't have the money to buy a lot of stuff, this is an awesome solution for that. And you know, the, the chapter kind of gets into the fact that the world still sucks, which is the reason why everybody's throwing money at solutions. Back to Max Headroom and stuff. Did you notice that the AR specs that he's wearing are Okagami Nex specs. Same company that makes the omnidirectional treadmill from the first book. Not surprising. Same no. technology company. Uh, you know, we're referencing something familiar there. So the other thing that kind of came to mind is he's talking about how large his home is. Do you remember, Have you ever seen the movie Mr. Destiny? I've not. Mm -mm. The gist of that movie is the lesser Belushi brother plays this guy who's kind of feels like he didn't fulfill his greatest potential. 
he kind of pins it on the fact that a major baseball game that he had the chance to be the hero, he struck out and that changed his life forever, which so his car breaks down, goes to this bar and then the bartender is this guy who like can change destinies and he ends up living this alternate life that he could have had and he he finds himself very wealthy, he's a high up person in, in this company and he's got a very large house. As he's exploring the new house, you know, he needs to get directions to find a bathroom. And he's told, well, sir, we have 15 bathrooms. And then he tries to go find one of these bathrooms, and he's just like, closet, another closet, another closet. Like, So, like, it's this big house, and, like, what do you need this all this stuff for? And that that's what it made me think of when he was talking about the ridiculous number of bathrooms in Halliday's house. This is not my beautiful wife. Yeah. <laughs> this is not my beautiful home. Exactly. Speaking of which, Talking Heads is featured in this chapter. I had heard this song, This Must Be the Place. I just don't, didn't remember it at the time. I didn't know that that was the title. Naive Melody. Which, in researching that, evidently they had just kind of gotten together and they just sort of threw some lyrics together over them experimenting with some instruments in different ways and kind of just coming up with this, as they put it, Naive Medley. It's a very sort of surface love song but I, I thought it was interesting because first off I don't listen to a lot of Talking Heads Talking Heads is outlawed in our house it's outlawed in your house well my wife does not like Talking Heads so but you might like them well and I have headsets if I wanted to listen to them but I, I thought it was interesting because whenever he puts in these songs I feel like the songs that he references are are a backdrop to the attitude or to the mood. And in this case, it's it's interesting. Because again, I didn't particularly like this song, but, but the lyrics are very kind of like... Uh, Home is where I want to be. Pick me up and turn me round. I feel numb, burned with a weak heart. I guess I must be having fun. Yeah. The less we say about it, the better... Make it up as we go along. Feet on the ground, head in the sky. It's okay. I know nothing's wrong. Nothing. And it kind of has that feeling of, yeah, I I suppose I'm in the right place, but I and I should be having fun. But it doesn't sound convinced of it, right? And that's that is like this entire chapter. That's him living in this gigantic house. That's him feeling this emptiness. Like he has all the money he needs. He is incredibly popular online and offline, I suppose. He should be having fun, but let's not talk about the fact that we're doubting it. Right? It kind of throws this shadow of doubt over what should be a good time. Uh, and I know, I just, I, I thought that was interesting because I had never really had a reason to listen to that song. And again, Talking Heads. Listening to this, and it has this very sort of light melody to it. So it's almost like sunlight, and then the lyrics kind of pop in, and you're like, oh, well, that's kind of different than the song sounds. It's very melancholy, but like lightly melancholy. Yeah, that's how I took it, at least. It is kind of a weird melody. I like some Talking Heads stuff, but I haven't really done a deep dive into them. Not, neither I'm more familiar with their more popular tunes. This is literally as deep as I've dove for anything that was Talking Heads. Duran Duran on the other side. Because um, oh, that is permitted. Not only permitted, but encouraged. 
Of course. But but we, before we get to that reference, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that we're going through, and we've, he's going through the gym, and he does his weight training with occasional encouragement by Max. Uh, there's there's a lot of description here of him exercising. Now, I have nothing against exercising. My feeling is that there is going to be a part of the story that's going to require putting all of this good exercise to use. Because otherwise, what's the point of going over four or five paragraphs about him physically exercising, particularly when he doesn't have to, when he's got no woman that he is courting? No, no, he does say he has to. He's got to, he, he has to maintain a minimum activity level because he basically spends the rest of his days dormant. He doesn't have to. Of course he does. Otherwise, he doesn't he, have to. Otherwise, you start, you start like atrophying. Why not? I mean, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. He could just get up and do other things. He doesn't have to work out. He doesn't have to lift weights. You know, like, I, shit, I spend most of my time working in front of a computer. So, you know, it, it, I just thought it was interesting. He's, he's got a, a workout routine here. And I wonder, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't necessarily have to, but I, I get it. That never occurred to me in my first read of this, only because it, it to me it wasn't like the first book where you did have to physically move to kind of inter- make your avatar move, and we kind of talked about that a little bit back then. Was you know maybe you know being able to, you know the physical activity and being able to endure through you know longer quests and things like that could actually be meaningful, but where the interface that's highlighted in this book is the O&I, that's less of a concern, much less of a concern. So I just saw it as this is him basically giving us a similar level of detail to what he had in the first book as to why he needed to maintain his physical body because he is otherwise... He would otherwise be a 24-7 couch potato. Anyways, I just thought it was interesting. I don't want to bemoan it a bit. I was just just kind of thinking to myself, like, he spends a good number of paragraphs talking about his exercise routine. It does show off some of the technology in that sense. But the flip of that is kind of like I dedicated a whole paragraph to him lifting weights. Kind of weird. Unless, of course, he was going to end up doing all kinds of exercise, if you will, or active stuff outside of the Oasis. And, you know, if anybody was to come back and go, how the hell is he doing that if he's in a rig all day long and living the posh life? And, you know, you have to have something. Oh, well, he exercises, remember? Anyhow, I don't know. I'm not going to linger on that too much. That's more of a prediction and you can't tell me I'm wrong or right. <laughs> no, but the one thing that we do learn, any kind of physical activity you do, you know, using the O&I has zero effect on your physical body. Right. Because it's all in your mind. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, You're not actually moving your muscles. So it just confirmed that. But uh, Yeah, I get it. And maybe this is just like being in space where you have to spend a period of time fighting atrophy. I get it. He's got his exercise routine, and then he goes to visit his cars, which is cool. And then he reveals that he's seeing a therapist, which is probably a good thing. I imagine this is not the easiest thing for him to be going through. He's got a lot of shit going on. But then... We kind of get a window into just even more money he's just kind of throwing away at things. 
he talks about his Ecto-88 movies. Oh, yeah. Which he does just purely out of getting the personal enjoyment and fulfillment from making them. Well, it's just, it, it's him flexing creativity. Yeah. And he admits that he doesn't, he, they don't make enough to cover the expenses, but they do pretty well for movies, given that nobody really has any motivation to go to movies anymore. And I, when I was reading about his description about the F actors or the, you know, the facsimile actors that he got the licensing for mm-hmm. to use in his movie. So like Christopher Lloyd, David Hasselhoff, Peter Weller, Dan Aykroyd, and Bill Murray. He included two of the four Ghostbusters. And I was just surprised that he stopped there with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. No matter. I understand what you're getting at, which is he could have he could have mentioned so many others. But, I mean, quite frankly, he just named off a group of peeps that he could get licensing rights to, and that proved his point. Yeah. Like, you know, there are so many people he could have mentioned, but then that would have gotten a bit lengthy. Yeah. It, it is kind of cool that, like, you could pay for licensing and just have whatever actor you want in your movie. That sounded kind of neat. What did you think of the description of the film that he was writing? Lame, lame, boring, boring, lame. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's it's how do you? It's a mashup. Sure. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of throws back to the kind of shit that he had put together before in the first book. The DeLorean that he had was a mashup of a number of symbols, a number of stickers. You know, now he was just able to turn it into a movie thing. I, I think what's more important here is that he's not researching. His creativity, when he was limited by funds, was focused in on discovering nuggets of wisdom within the Oasis. His sole focus was really limited to hunting for the egg. And now he has a shitload of other things he can do. He has all the money in the world. He can creatively do whatever he wants to do. He's just playing around. And he's not able to research because he's not focused in. He's not in his comfort zone. He's empty. And his creativity is empty or not in the direction of his research, which is, you know, admittedly where he says research. I reminded myself, you have to keep up with your research, which he perceives as watching Doctor Who. But the fact of the matter is, is it, it's more than that because of the shard. Yeah. Did you watch Doctor Who or do you watch Doctor I Who? I was not a Doctor Who fan. Yeah, I tried because at one point in my life, I had a lot of friends who were really big into Doctor Who. So I tried. And mm-hmm. I, I just I just couldn't stick with it. It just got eh. And honestly, like when it changed over to David Tennant as the as the Doctor, I was like, mm-hmm. eh. I yeah, I never I never got into it. My grandparents did; they would watch it, but I just I don't know. It just didn't capture me, and I never got into it. And as a result, I never followed through on any of the episodes or anything. Yeah. I, th- I might have seen one or two episodes. I was like. Why the fuck can't they go upstairs? I I think I yeah I think I watched it's hard, a, to, it's hard to destroy the universe if you can't go upstairs. I watched like a season or two of it, um, and it was like it was okay, but it didn't grab me enough. And I never and maybe it was because people talked it up so much, like it was like this amazing thing. Like it, I was only going to be disappointed by it, right? But I was just curious, and then. Um, and I had some notes here about like the the different rankings of the doctors because apparently Jodie Whittaker was her favorite doctor. Whose favorite doctor? Kira's favorite doctor is Jodie Whittaker. Ah, okay. I just thought it was interesting because, generally speaking, she does not end up in a top ranking 
list of the doctors. Mm-hmm. And to each their own. <laughs> David Tennant is frequently listed as like the number one doctor. I honestly don't know necessarily enough about it to, to deep dive into that idea. Uh, and again, maybe maybe that just speaks to the fact that 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 Kira's taste in the doctors was more uh, subtle, more specific, or maybe more engaged or gender based. Well, or gender based than the popular love, like the popular stuff. Like generally, you're going to geek out or deep dive nerd into the the aspects that people miss, the things that aren't as popular, the B side shit that has more meaning, but that not everybody is really into or get fully gets. And yet here he is deep diving or trying to study into the most popular doctor, which is kind of like why? What is that going to gain you that everyone else doesn't already know? So let's dive into the relationship crap. Let's do that. Ugh, relationships. I didn't know this was that kind of podcast. Sounds like it is time to take a break from chapter 0001. Listen to part two of this episode as your favorite Gunters talk about Parzival and Artemis' short-lived relationship, as well as the plan B. See ya. Yeah.